So hello and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, where today we'll be discussing the topic of resource transition, a term that refers to the sweeping changes the world needs to make in the way that it extracts, uses and disposes of its resources, resources that range from energy to minerals to food and water and biodiversity. I'm Nick White, Global Strategic Research Director for Mercer, and I'm joined for, by two experts in this space from Impacts Asset Management, Chris Dodwell and David Lee. Chris, I'll come to you first, if I may. We can't talk about resource transition without talking about climate transition and energy transition. I note that 10 of your 25 years in public and private sectors were spent in the UK government working on their climate change strategy, including leading their implementation of the EU emissions trading system, and also heading the UK delegation to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. You're clearly well-placed to give us an update on COP26. From your perspective, what were the biggest wins and failures? Um, and where do we go from here? Great. Well, thanks very much for having us, Nick. Um, so um, I, I think the, the best way to describe COP26 was kind of the, the words that Nick Stern used, which was, you know, the best that we could have hoped for, but not enough to pat ourselves on the back. Um, we went into the COP with a whole bunch of policies and actions um, that we were hoping national governments were going to come in and scale up. And if you kind of looked at climate action trackers totalizer, they kind of said, well, we're kind of on track for maybe about 2.7 degrees if we deliver everything that has kind of been put forward ahead of the COP, all of the NDC pledges. We saw some really good movement during the COP. You know, India came forward with a net zero target, which means we've now got 90 percent of global GDP with those kind of targets. Um, we also had um uh, a few countries stepping up and pledges coming through on the sectoral front. And and you come out of it with this um, sense that actually, if all of this stuff is delivered, um, we could be on track for something like 1.8 degrees centigrade. So that's kind of getting to the below two degrees and on track for the 1.5. So that's the kind of the positive element of this. And also there was agreement from all of the countries that they'd come back in the next year and update their NDCs. Um, and that's why the real action's important. So India's kind of 90, India's kind of net zeros, not as material as what they say they're going to do over the next decade. This decade is absolutely critical for action. And when people think about the, um, think about the COP and think about climate, as you, as you, as you say, they're generally thinking about the energy transition. So if these national targets are deliverable, we are going to see a massive scaling up and a, 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 of investment into clean electrification, I think is probably the easiest way to put it. So that is a huge increase in renewable energy generation. Uh, even in developed countries, you're probably looking at a factor of three times what they've already got on track. Uh, and in developing countries, you know, in Africa, you're probably looking at a, a, gr a growth of 10, 10 times. So that's where the, the bulk of the capital is going to go. It's going to go into investment into clean energy. So that's into renewable projects, also into the grids. We're going to need to have upgraded grids. We're going to have to have new systems for storage to balance uh, with intermittent supply. Uh, and you're going to have to have um, real investment in electrification. 
using new technologies. And that that is still a huge investment opportunity. Um, there's going to have to be a lot of action by governments to make those investments attractive, in particular in emerging markets. And the other piece of the puzzle is around energy transition is really around the new technologies that we're going to have to bring in that will decarbonize the hard to abate sectors. Um, and I think there's been some really interesting initiatives launched at the COP that was around how do you reduce the cost of these new technologies? So um, they're called the Glasgow Breakthroughs. Um, so this is focused on things like um, heavy duty transport, hydrogen production, um, and, and actually this focus on these hard to abate sectors, basically heavy industry, heavy transport. Uh, and you're seeing some really interesting a- action and coalitions going on there through the Mission Possible Partnership. Um, and I think they offer different types of investment activity and potentially some sort of smaller disruptors coming through. But also, you know, for hydrogen, you know, the development of an entire new sort of sector at scale. So at the moment, we haven't we need to get down to um, between two and three dollars per kilogram uh, of green hydrogen. It's hydrogen produced from renewables in order to kind of make it uh, a cost competitive with just uh, current forms of producing hydrogen. But also we don't actually have the end uses yet. So you've got to kind of work out, well, how are you going to use that hydrogen in, say, uh, decarbonizing a cement plant, perhaps blending into grids or perhaps use in in, in other sectors, heavy transport. So that's going to be a really exciting area to, to watch. And this is fascinating, isn't it? Because here, what we're talking about is we're talking about high emissions areas, areas where really investors can make the biggest impact. Um, I'm just interested in how that sits with investors who are out there, they're on an emissions trajectory, they're looking to reduce portfolio emissions. Is there a danger that actually those areas of biggest impact that might require us to invest in high emissions areas are being pushed to one side in favour of um, more mechanical forms of decarbonisation? It's a really interesting question. And I think, um, I think that, you know, one of the, 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 one of the things that came out of, um, came out of Glasgow was this kind of financial alliance pushing towards net zero, the 130 trillion of assets under management that are now being mobilised in this direction. But you raise a really good point. At the moment, when you look at the targets that many of those financial institutions have taken on, they're generally measured in terms of portfolio carbon emissions. So it's looking at the emissions footprint of your portfolio. And as you know, as many people are aware, you know, if you actually want to decarbonize a portfolio, all you need to do is move into basically the stocks that aren't making a material difference to the transition. So kind of go into, you know, the fangs and kind of bring your bring your money out of industrials. Um, but what happens then? to that causes two problems one what happens to the stocks that you're moving out of are you just playing a sort of pass the parcel game with heavy carbon stocks so they end up perhaps in private equity or in state-owned uh funds that are probably less open to public scrutiny and they just continue business as usual continue to kind of mine the coal um kind of bring the oil out and sell it and you know the economy doesn't change but also crucially Who's investing in the solutions? And actually, quite a lot of these solutions may well come from players 
that are in a particular sector. So we've seen really interesting action at the moment around steel, I mentioned earlier, where a number of companies are starting to pivot and starting to put their capex into the solutions, but they're probably still regarded as heavy carbon intensive sectors. So um, one of the things Impacts has done over the last year is we've been working with um, something called the Climate Financial Risk Forum. And what we were, were, this is a UK government, FCA and Bank of England kind of convened industry body. And we've basically been trying to say, look, if you want to actually tackle both the risks to you as an investor, but also the risks, um, you know, your um, your role in the transition and kind of how you can affect the systemic risk we're all facing, you need to think much more holistically. So the traditional parts of kind of TCFD and transition risk and what what kind of carbon price might I be exposed to? The decarbonisation, that has a role because you do want to reduce your exposure to high carbon assets. But also, what are you doing in terms of investing in the transition? How are you mobilising the finance necessary to deliver these emission reductions, to kind of take every sector of the economy down and invest in these new technologies? And crucially, what are you doing on engaging with the companies you're already investing in, rather than thinking about divestment as your principal mechanism? That's excellent. Thanks very much, Chris. So, David, if I could introduce you at this point, you're a portfolio manager uh, of an Asian environmental strategy. Some of the things that that Chris was alluding to there about portfolios just shifting from dirty sectors to clean sectors. You're close to the market. Um, energy transition is widely recognised by investors, but it's not really widely understood. Where do you think the market has got ahead of itself and what opportunities has it left on the table to more savvy investors? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so as Chris uh, highlighted, uh, how you define what is sustainable or environmental is very crucial. And I think just to sell out of every company that has a carbon footprint is not the way to go. Uh, and the way uh, investors should think about it is really to think of companies that are making ways in terms of improving uh, their footprint. So at the margin, are they improving their processes uh, to reduce uh, per unit of production, uh, the amount of carbon or other resources that are being consumed? So we like to look at it at the incremental at the margin uh, what the leading companies are doing versus the benchmark or the industry uh, average. Uh, the other thing I'd like to point out is that there's been a lot of focus on the supply side. So, you know, the renewables um, and, and people tend to think, um, think of them as risky or, or ends up uh, getting very crowded trades and bubbles forming. Uh, but I think a lot of attention should be also placed on the demand side for energy and, uh, and therefore, uh, you will find a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of how do we consume less. So energy efficiency uh, in transport, uh, but more so in industrial manufacturing is, is important, especially in Asia uh, being the factory for the world. So how do we uh, use existing technologies to make our production more efficient, reduce consumption of water, energy, uh, materials, and reuse existing uh, consumables or water so that's another point which I think uh, some people have have not really focused on. Uh, and on top of that, I think Chris has also highlighted uh, the delivery of, of the energy, so the, uh, the platform or the transportation, if you like. So smart grid uh, and also uh, storage, which facilitates uh, the adoption of renewables. Uh, and hydrogen is, is one of those uh, potential uh, concepts. Uh, still early days. Um, 
And as a, as a result, I think my conclusion is that uh, investing in energy transition doesn't have to be very risky. You don't really have to go for the latest building technology. Um, you can look at uh, some of the more established players who are trying to do things a bit better uh, and improving the kind of carbon footprint at the margin uh, and, th- and thereby construct a, a relatively diversified portfolio uh, without taking undue risk. Okay, thanks for that. I mean, one of the things I'd be interested in exploring is the value versus growth mix, because we typically talk about any kind of strategy having a, um, a growth bent. We've seen, we talked about things, you know, there's been a massive divergence in value versus growth that's tend to reverse recently. Um, what opportunities do you see that are really in the value space? I mean, one of the areas that we'd be interested in is related to that great uh, electrification that's needed. The fact that... Uh, Electric vehicles need five times the volume of certain minerals as internal combustion engines and solar and wind require so so many more multiples of the minerals that, say, a a gas plant would need. Um, We've seen commodities massively rise. We're talking about phrases like greenflation these days. As long as you put the word green in front of something, it becomes significant. But it does seem to be something um, that is, is here to stay and probably for the right reasons is actually mining one of those dirty areas? Is that actually something that is needed to um, fuel this transition? No pun intended. (laughs) I suppose uh, it is a difficult area given that um, some of these materials do come from conflict areas uh, and some of their kind of uh, employment or labour practices or, or environmental policies are not up to scratch. So we have to be very careful uh, so as a result, we can look at uh, support industries uh, in the supply chain uh, of those materials, be it in, in testing and monitoring, uh, be it in consultants who do the environmental impact studies for, for mining activities, uh, you know, a lot of the equipment that are used to recycle and reuse uh, some of those uh, mining um, uh, waste uh, that has been generated. So we can uh, tackle this uh, through looking at a much broader set of companies rather than owning the mine itself um, in, in order to kind of avoid some of those controversies uh, that may come come back and, and hit us hard. So, yes, we do invest in those areas, but not necessarily in, in the mine itself. I understand. Thank you. Um, and given that you're an Asia expert, Asia is obviously critical to um, the transition, in particular China. What sort of um, massive technological upgrade uh, in the Chinese economy? What sort of opportunities are you seeing in that space? Yeah, well, there's a lot lot going on. So in Asia, we do have the solution providers, so mainly the North Asian uh, countries like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and then the consumers uh, of environmental or sustainable products, which is China, India, ASEAN, which is where a lot of the manufacturing is being shifted toward. So we are seeing kind of a, a, a big upgrade and momentum in adopting new technologies uh, in, in manufacturing. So automation, uh, software to optimize uh, production, uh, data capture, big data, certification, um, <coughs> be it the sensors and monitors, uh, computers, industrial computers. So these are areas which people kind of overlook, um, but it's it's key to this uh, massive industrial upgrade that's taking place uh, in Asia, 
And part of that is also to enable Asia to participate in the next growth phase, which is no longer in making sports shoes and T-shirts, but more in electronics, uh, EV components, uh, renewable products, uh, renewable uh, equipment products. So, yeah, uh, we are seeing quite a lot of activity going on uh, in China, in India, uh, in some of the newer emerging Asian markets and the supply of these products from Japan, from Taiwan and Korea. Okay, thanks for that. Do you mind if we just switch gears a little bit and we'll talk, we'll we'll broaden our perspective on on the resources. So we've talked a lot about energy transition in the context of climate transition, which is absolutely critical, but emissions, agriculture itself accounts for over 20% of of emissions um, and some quite nasty emissions as well. So COP26 for the first time was recognising methane. Um, 105 countries pledged to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030. But there's also agriculture is responsible for um, nitrous oxide emissions, which are really highly potent. Um, Chris, where are these emissions coming from? Why are they so critical? Um, And what is the agricultural industry doing about this? So I think this was one of the one of the major things that kind of that the, the UK government really deserves applaud it for the way that it kind of approached the sectoral question at COP26. So um, they'd already decided ahead of the COP that they were going to break down the challenge into some smaller sort of sectoral priorities and to try to make progress on this idea of coalitions of the willing. So, you know, we've already talked about some of those ways that you could take that forward on the energy transition but by by allowing this kind of idea of breaking down the problem you then started to put the spotlight on some of these things that really hadn't got significant attention up until now and i think you're absolutely right to focus on methane nick um the ipcc report came out earlier in the year around well actually how are we going to get to kind of 1.5 degrees and you know what's the role of methane in in slowing down um, uh, global warming, and because it's a, it's basically a fast-acting pollutant, it stays in the atmosphere for a shorter period of time. Which means if we take action to cut it, we can actually see the results more quickly. So they estimate that about 0.5 degrees of the warming that we've already experienced, around 1.3, they're kind of estimating, 0.5 degrees of that comes from methane emissions. But yet there's very little action being taken to tackle those emissions. So, you know, if you look at agriculture as a sector, it barely features in these nationally determined contributions, the national pledges that governments were um, were putting forward. And, and impacts, we signed up to a letter that was organised by, um, by Fed. Um, the initiative that kind of focuses on, on agriculture and food ahead of the COP, calling for governments to do more on this sector. And we were really pleased to see that the EU and the US then focused on methane and came up with this global methane pledge, 105 countries to address it. So methane emissions do come from a number of sources. One of the ones that we haven't mentioned, but you know, let's park it for now, is the oil and gas sector and the fugitive emissions that come from that. That is basically just kind of wasted resource. So if you're thinking about kind of resource transition, actually just capturing the methane that's leaking out of pipelines and being flared at points of production is a really good place to start. And I still still don't understand why that sector doesn't see the opportunity to kind of a win-win and to kind of be the good guys for once in doing something about that. Also, 
um, thinking about Australia, you know, capping out the emissions from old coal plants, old coal mines. That's a big uh, source of emissions. But moving on to agriculture. So you've got, as you said, you've got methane emissions and they largely come from um, enteric digestion. They largely come from actually from the, the animals and the way that um, the way that uh, in particular um, cows and pigs, you know, their uh, their digestive systems and the way that they operate. So, you know, one way there there are ways to abate it. There are some interesting new developments going on in in terms of feed uh, and how you can actually address digestive systems. You've also got some interesting ideas around shift away from meat consumption to reduce. I mean, if if you actually look at the amount of meat that is consumed by developed countries, it's way higher than it was 30 years ago. Uh, you know, the US is double kind of what we consume in Europe. Uh, and in India, they probably consume about a tenth of that in terms of per capita. So actually, we could shift our diets um, and, and shift the type of agricultural production that we're, that we're looking at. So methane emissions part of this, but also agriculture is a massive contributor to um, carbon dioxide emissions, in particular through land use. So, you know, one of the things we've really got to get a grip on that was again addressed at the COP is deforestation. So, again, 100, 100 plus countries have signed up to this pledge to end deforestation within the next decade. Uh, and at the moment, this is not included in these national goals. So I think there's a, a real opportunity there to start to, to look at how we're going to do that and impacts we signed up to a couple of things in that area at the COP. one was around um uh a, a, an investor pledge to have deforestation free portfolios we think we're in a pretty good position in terms of our sustainable food stocks because we've already done the due diligence on the companies that are there but we want to share that expertise with other investors and really demonstrate that actually the investors are there behind this um behind this transition so I think there's um, I think there's in terms of actual solutions, what, what we really want to be doing here is taking the pressure off the need for, um, uh, you know, for, for kind of converting more land. So actually, it's l starting to link into ideas around efficiency, resource efficiency, uh, precision agriculture. How can we actually look at technologies that allow us to get more out of the land that's currently being used for food supply? Um, regenerative agriculture, which is kind of a new concept around, well, how do you actually get the soils to absorb more carbon as you're using them and then to be more productive? So how do you actually use the land you're using more effectively? And there are some really interesting ideas coming from within the um, the supply chain and within some of the large food producers and, and players in the sector. So I think it's going to be a real focus this year is what does this food system transition look like? At the moment, we've got some really good visions uh, in terms of a transition to a low carbon economy. I think, you know, the IEA has plotted out its net zero roadmap. We kind of need to see the same thing happening in the food sector. Um, we need to see how do we transition to a, a net zero food sector where, you know, you can start, which could balance itself. You know, there's room for kind of carbon sinks there as well as reducing the sources of emissions. So I think that's going to be a big focus uh, in the run up to um, to the Egyptian COP. I'm not sure whether it will happen quickly enough 
to get everyone to kind of incorporate this type of action into updated NDCs. But undoubtedly, the rest of this decade has got to see a focus on this. Um, and I think we're going to come on to talk about, you know, one of the drivers for that, which is this increased concern we now have about nature loss and biodiversity and the risks that are being faced as a result of that. Absolutely. It feels like we're quite a long way behind the curve. How much can we expect of of COP15 to address those issues? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, we we are um, we are really I think we're late to understand the risks that we're exposed to. So some of the stats that the World Economic Forum have come out with uh, in terms of, you know, the exposure we have. we have around um, 44 trillion of economic value generation, around half of global GDP is dependent on nature. And, you know, that's no real surprise. You know, we're all dependent. We all live in we all live on the one planet and we're using these resources. Um, you know, that's that's in terms of our food uh, and crop pollination, our livelihoods, where people earn their livings from oceans, from agriculture and actually, you know, protecting ourselves from climate change. A lot of mangroves are providing um, flood defence for millions of people around the world. So we've got this kind of really strong dependency on nature, but we are exploiting it at a rate that is just totally unsustainable. Um, and also the fact that we're we're focusing so much on a small number of crops means that we've got very little resilience if there were diseases that kind of came into those crops. So I think the way to approach this issue actually is through risk. You know, if we actually started to look at the potential impacts and the sectors that are at risk from nature um, degradation, then I think investors are going to wake up to it rather than as they have on climate. Mark Carney's kind of tragedy of the horizons and kind of becoming aware of physical risks of climate change and starting to analyze that. I think that areas in that will get investors to increasingly kind of appreciate what the risks are. Now, the main way that that's being taken forward at the moment is through this task force for nature related um, financial disclosures. Um, and they're starting to look at metrics and how do you actually start to analyze these risks? But as you said, the, we've got this COP coming up. COP15, it's the Convention on Biological Diversity, one of the sort of sister conventions to the Convention on Climate Change. Uh, and when I started looking at this um, a couple of years ago, as you said, I was a former negotiator. So I kind of went to look at the text and see what was there in the text. I think the real issue we've got um, is there isn't like a 1.5 degrees or kind of net zero concept out there. It's quite hard to understand what interventions you need to make in order to address nature and biodiversity loss um, and I think that's going to the, that's got to be the focus for um, for the cop in in China it looks like that's going to be delayed now that's the the latest sort of rumors it was due to happen in late April early May it's probably going to be a few months down the line now again it's going to be a sort of covid knock-on and whether people are willing to you know, willing to fly with the Chinese government want to host that kind of meeting. But that's probably a good thing because nature and biodiversity are more complex than climate. We kind of think 
climate change is a really kind of complicated topic, but actually it's quite simple in terms of the impact is caused by emissions. You can kind of come up with carbon as a proxy for all the other emissions. You can think about ways to put a price on carbon. You come up with a concept of net zero. Nature is much more multifaceted and we don't really understand some of the interactions. So uh, we've been thinking about this at impacts and we think that we whilst you can borrow some ideas from carbon and climate, there are going to be other things that will you'll need a more mindful response for. So we've been advocating that you need to focus on this idea of a multi-local solution so you can identify you know it's going to be very place-based the response um but actually you can find similar situations in similar countries and therefore adopt a similar approach but equally you're going to have to break down the challenge into a chunk of say biodiversity imperatives so one of those is probably is definitely going to be around deforestation and we talked a bit about that earlier on. How do we actually make these deforestation pledges happen? What policies do you need? There's probably going to be others around how do you focus on pollination as a kind of service? But I think you need to kind of we need to chunk it up a bit like we've done on climate. Um, so fascinating area. There's some really interesting businesses that are starting to look at it. But I would say in terms of investments at the moment, what we're going to be focusing on more is how do you limit harm rather than how do we restore nature? So um, the limitation of harm is something that comes from an economic activity. So how do you conduct your activities in a different way? The restoring nature and the regenerative element, it's difficult at the moment to see how you're going to get a revenue stream that comes out of that. But I think if we you know, over time, those those solutions will emerge and we'll be able to think of ways to kind of finance them and turn them not just into kind of things that demand subsidy from governments, but actually investments that can generate returns. Yeah, so you're talking about having a broad-based exposure with reduced exposures or zero exposures to those who are most exposed to litigation or regulation risk that could develop with changes in regulation. Is that the broad split? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's something that a, a company like Impacts can do. But actually, when you look at the um, when you start to analyze which sectors are having the worst impacts, it, it's a lot of the global economy. You know, so we we've talked about the food system. Um, we've talked about which at the moment is currently highly dependent on um, soy uh, that is being farmed as a feedstock to go to animals, and that it's the it's actually the soy um, that is kind of causing the deforestation. Um, you've got insecticides that are killing the pollinators that are actually part of that food system anyway. So the agricultural system it's quite difficult to work out how you're going to see your way through that for the mainstream investors. You've got mining and you know conversion of land. And, you know, big infrastructure projects. So we talked a bit about that earlier. How does that fit with a trade off with climate where you're going to need those new minerals? So do you need to have some kind of green mining system? Can we use um, can we use systems we've got like uh, environmental impact assessments and build biodiversity more into those? But you've also got other many other areas like um, uh, food, uh, apparel, 
um, and kind of fast fashion that is dependent on, you know, crops that are coming from um, that are they're coming from agriculture. So I think you need to look at it across different sectors and consider what their exposure is and, and, and how you can start to raise awareness of, of the risks involved. That's right. So clients are crying out for overarching frameworks across this thing such that they can take this broad perspective on, on resource transition. We talk about intentionality and measurability, and it's that measurability that perhaps is the is the is the crucial point here. Um, David, just over to you uh, quickly, if I may. Um, you as a house, you're operating both public and private markets. We've already talked about this being really it's a risk management issue as much as it is uh, an investable opportunity issue. Would you challenge that? Are there, are there things that people can, in, are there strategies, companies that people can invest in in these areas that are really making a difference in the biodiversity and water space? Uh, it's a bit of both. I think certainly uh, we will look at a lot of the risk areas in the supply chain uh, of the companies that we invest in. Um, but at the same time, um, there are companies which obviously uh, will benefit um, as regulation or investor attention is, is paid to these areas. So companies that uh, typically consume less uh, be it water, be it pesticides, um, or companies that enable that, you know, precision agriculture, which reduces water and thereby reduces pesticides uh, and fertilizers. Um, some of this could relate to big data, uh, it could relate to satellite technology. Um, so um, farming equipment, uh, how do we incorporate some of these technologies in farming equipment, uh, which are in need of being deployed in Asia in particular, uh, which are, you know, small scale farms, uh, where farmers can't really uh, afford uh, these kind of technologies. So yeah, there are, there are areas that we can invest in, uh, that are obviously going to benefit, uh, in the long term due to the focus on biodiversity and reducing damage to the environment. Okay. Thank you. I think maybe, um, I mean, there's another topic that's probably for another day, which is how all this feeds into the, the circular economy. And really what that means is that a, a complete reboot of the way we behave. But I think we've seen lots of examples today of that really will, will contribute towards a more circular economy and a more efficient economy, both from an energy and a resource point of view. Um, I'd just like to wrap up, if I may, with just a, a, a few takeaways, and then I'll hand over to each of you for uh, final comments and I think what we're hearing loud and clear is that we need to take a broad perspective with regards to resources. One that goes beyond energy is very focused on energy, but does go beyond energy um, to consider these wider issues such as, such as water and biodiversity and the risks associated with, with uh, companies and assets that are uh, wasteful in that area. Um, but also that there's opportunities for those um, savvy, experienced investors so an allocation in the portfolio to uh, assets such as these is something that you'd expect to add value over the long term. Um, but there's another subtle aspect of this, which is related to emissions pathways. For, uh, for clients who are on those um, emissions pathways, it's right and proper to do that. But the, the nature of that pathway needs to be part of a broader framework, part of a, um, a broader approach to, to resource 
and cognizant of the the true value of the portfolio emissions reduction that you're putting into your portfolio, which is ultimately planet emissions reduction. Um, Chris, David, any any final comments from from each of you? Yeah, I mean, I I think what I'd just like to say, Nick, is that I think we are. I think COP26 was a really important milestone in terms of perception of um, the role of the private sector in kind of addressing climate. Um, so you know we so many companies have now kind of switched on to the concept of net zero over the last two years it's really you know difficult to remember that actually it's only just two and a half years since the uk was the first government to kind of declare a net zero target so many have now started to go well hang on there's an inevitability about the policy transition in this way we're going to look at the opportunities to come out of this and they are developing business plans and you know, new startups, but also pivoting to see the opportunities that come from that. And I think we will only see that trend continuing. And what's going to happen, We, I hope, is if COP15 delivers clarity in terms of the direction that we're heading and how national governments will then work on that, you will also see the same happen with biodiversity. So I think that's going to be these sectoral roadmaps, this idea that you're going to have to solve for both climate and for energy and for nature within one sort of sectoral roadmap that will give people the idea of where these potential investments and where the transitions lie you then have the the tricky question of to so which companies do i pick and what's the best way to get exposure to this big new theme that will be kind of dominating you know the next decade and i think that's where you're going to need the expert advice but i think the direction of travel is now much clearer than it was even a year ago. We're ending on a message of hope like that. David, any comments from you? Yeah, just to echo what Chris has pointed out, I mean, it is a journey which is uh, being uh, defined uh, and redefined uh, as we go along, uh, as these new technologies come in, new policies come in. Uh, We just have to be a lot more resourceful uh, in in our quest to find ideas and to avoid taking undue risk uh, and sometimes uh, avoid bubbles uh, as, you know, some of these maybe even passive money start chasing thematics, uh, which are, for example, hydrogen was, was a big thematic in the last 12 months. And I mean, electric vehicle battery, you know, lithium, these kind of things. We, we have to avoid going for these crowded trades and look beyond uh, into the deeper underpinnings uh, of the the value creation uh, in these markets so don't be alarmed by volatility Uh, you don't really have to take it uh, at face value there's a lot more to be done Uh, and i think um, patient investors will be rewarded quite right and thank you for throwing the word resourceful into a resource transition podcast that was So I'd, uh, I'd like to thank you both for, for joining me today and sharing your insights uh, and to you, the listener, for joining us. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen uh, to your podcast and please leave a rating and a review. If you'd like to contact, contact us or speak to a Mercer representative, please email ctci at mercer.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. 
If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Impacts Asset Management is a manager rated by Mercer. Impacts Asset Management has not been paid by or received any compensation from Mercer for participating in this podcast. Please see Mercer's Conflict of Interest Disclosure link in the important notices for additional information.